Well, good morning, church. Great to see some familiar faces we've not seen in a while and some brand new faces. Um, if this is your first time, is this is your latest of many times, if you're joining us online, uh, to all of you, welcome. I want you to think with me this morning about uh, the difference between people who you would say are really flourishing in life, those who... Uh, who have good relationships, who have a settled sense of purpose, uh, who, who really live in, in ways that, that we would aspire to live. I want you to think about that group of people and then maybe think about their opposite and wonder with me what the difference might be between the two. And I was thinking about this week and I was imagining the difference is probably not the things that we often imagine, not the things that we are preoccupied with. Uh, maybe not so much money or, or health or talent or good looks or IQ. The, the difference, to fall back on a solid biblical word, is wisdom. It's the ability to make really good decisions. If you're the average person, studies tell us the average person makes 70 decisions a day. Those are 70 conscious decisions. You probably make lots more decisions you're not even aware of. But 70 conscious decisions a day. If you do the math on that, you realize that's about, I don't know, 25,000 or so decisions over the course of a year or just under 2 million decisions in the span of a lifetime. You put it all together, and basically that is the course of a life that determines who you are. Albert Camus, one of the the great thinkers, philosophers of the last century, said that life is really a sum of all of your choices. That's who you are. That's, That's what you are building. And it's kind of sobering to think about it, because there are so many decisions, 70 a day, and it's easy to make a bad one. That's why we're starting this series, and we're going to stay with this series for the next five or six weeks, on the importance of making those strategic, especially those life-altering decisions in the best possible way. Again, we do this so frequently, and we do it realizing that bad decisions compound each other, and they can lead to things that are very costly. Bad decisions can cost people a marriage. It can cost you your health, they can cause financial catastrophe, they can affect your relationships, your children, your career, your happiness, even the life of your own soul. Here's what, uh, here's what the Bible says, this is Proverbs 19 in verse 3, it says, people ruin their lives by their own what? Foolishness. I mean, that's just kind of true, isn't it? We wish it weren't, but it's just kind of true. Think of all the decisions that you have ever made. This is a mass confession moment. I know Rochelle sort of led you through one of these. Uh, Let's take it in a bit of a different direction. Just for a moment, to level out the playing field, I want you to think of all the decisions that you've made over the course of your lifetime, all of the ways you've decided to spend your money or save it, the people you've decided to date or not date, the, the food that you have decided to eat or refrain from eating, all of the words that you spoke or decided not to say, what you've done with your time, your relationships, your habit, your thought life, all of that. 
Any of you make a decision along the way that you have regretted? If so, <laughs> yeah, we have some people here that, um, oh, no, oh, they're coming now. They're just late. We're trying to decide. The real central truth that I would like to reflect on with you today is that we don't go through the decision-making process alone. We don't need to, nor should we. And the key text we're going to look at today is involving one of the central characters of the Old Testament, a man you may have run across in your reading who went by the name of Solomon. We meet Solomon as a young man. He's recently taken over leadership of the nation. He realizes he is way over his head, and he has a truly amazing opportunity that comes to him in the book of 1 Kings, when God appears to him and says, Solomon, ask what you want, and I'll give it to you. I'm going to invite Jennifer to come and read that passage for us from 1 Kings. More than church. Our passage for today is from 1 Kings chapter 3, verses 5 to 14. At Gibeon, the Lord appeared to Solomon during the night in a dream, and God said, Ask for whatever you want me to give you. Solomon answered, You have showed great kindness to your servant, my father David, because he was faithful to you and righteous and upright in heart. You have continued this great kindness to him and have given him a son to sit on his throne this very day. Now, Lord my God, you have made your servant king in place of my father David. But I am only a child and do not know how to carry out my duties. Your servant is here among the people you have, car- you have chosen. Um, sorry, your servant is here among the people you have chosen, a great people too numerous to count or number. So give your heart, give your servant a discerning heart to govern your people and to distinguish between right and wrong. For who is able to govern this great people of yours? The Lord was pleased that Solomon had asked for this. So God said to him, Since you have asked for this, and not for long life or wealth for yourself, nor have asked for the death of your enemies, but for Discernment in administering justice, I will do what you have asked. I will give you a wise and discerning heart, so that there will never have been anyone like you, nor will there ever be. Moreover, I will give you what you have not asked for, both wealth and honor, so that in your lifetime you have no equal among kings. And if you have walked in obedience to me and keep my decrees and commands as your father, as David your father did, I will give you a long life. May God bless the reading of his word. Imagine that moment. God offers you a blank check. Ask for what you'd like. Solomon asks for what? Wisdom. Uh, A wise and discerning heart, 70 times a day, 25,000 times a year, 2 million decisions that shape a life. And somewhere along the way, early on, actually in his youth, 
Solomon finds the wisdom to ask for the wisdom to shape all those other choices. And the scripture says it pleased God. There was a, a writer, a man named Bob Merritt, who wrote about the experience. Here's what he said. That a part of what God seems to be saying is that if you pursue wisdom, many other good things generally follow. Financial well-being might follow because wise people tend to work hard and save well and give generously, and they don't often get trapped by debt. Physical well-being, long life may follow because wise people do things like eat well and exercise and go to see their doctors and so on. Honor, honor, having a good name because wise people make choices of integrity and tend to do the right thing and be fair to people and we, we tend to be drawn to them. Success or effectiveness in your work because wise people tend to use their time really, really well and be serious about their gifts and hone them and keep learning and growing all the time. That's just part of what wisdom does. Again, I don't think Merritt is suggesting there that, that those are guarantees They're just tendencies. But it's no wonder that Solomon would go on to say, Proverbs chapter 4, verse 7, get wisdom. I mean, there it is in a nutshell. Get wisdom. Even though it might cost you all that you have, get understanding. And when you have it, esteem it. Esteem her and she will exalt you. Wisdom is a female word in in the Old Testament. That's why the the female uh, pronoun there. Esteem her. She'll exalt you. Embrace her and she will honor you. Good decisions never get made in isolation. And great decisions invite God at the very beginning of the process. What remains of the message? I, I would like to lead you through... How it, how it is we could go about following the example that Solomon set. How do you make great, God-honoring, life-giving decisions? And over the next few weeks, we're going to go on kind of a congregational adventure in with God decision-making. How do we make decisions with God in the mix? So here we go. Uh, the first suggestion, the first step is this. It is the Solomon ask. What did Solomon ask? Well, the first thing he does is he prays. Step one, you pray, you ask God for wisdom. You start where Solomon starts. In the New Testament, the book of James talks about this. James 1 verse 5, if any of you is lacking wisdom, ask God, because God gives generously. He gives to everyone without finding fault, and it'll be given to you. God loves to give wisdom. He gives it to people who need it. This is a topic I think that is... It is hugely misunderstood in our day. Decision-making, the will of God. What is, what is God's will for my life? And so often we get stuck on this one. How do I know the will of God for my life? Anybody ever wrestle with that? How do I know God's will for my life? I remember a time when I was midway through university. I'm trying to decide what I ought to do with my life, specifically vocationally. What is it would be my career? my work, my paid gig, if you'd like. I can remember praying about this for hours and hours, telling God, you know, I don't really care what it is. I'm in engineering right now, but if it's not going to be engineering, just tell me what it is. Tell me what you want me to do. And then there was just silence, like uncomfortable, deafening silence. 
one of the things that was in the mix was ministry. God, you want me to be a pastor? And I sort of said, God, if this is what you want, send me a postcard. I mean, literally, signed Jehovah. Write something on the message board of the dormitory wall so I would, I would know. <laughs> it was in the process of wrestling through some of that and in the years that followed that, that I came to one of the most important discoveries in my own spiritual life. And here it is. God's primary will for your life is not the things that you do. It is the person that you become. God's primary will for your life is not what job you ought to take. Maybe another way of saying that is God's will is not primarily situational or circumstantial. It's not mainly about the job that you take or the city that you live or whether or not you get married or the house that you're thinking about buying. God's primary will for your life is that you become a magnificent person in his image. Somebody with the character of Jesus. That's God's primary will for you. And by the way, no circumstance can prevent that. No circumstance. Not your address, not your health, not your vocation. And you actually, I think you understand that that's true in ways that we might not even think about. Uh, perhaps most of all, if, if you've been through the experience of parenting or grandparenting or godparenting, if, if you've watched that next generation grow up within us. As a parent, if you're a parent, would you always want the kind of kids in your life that relied on you to tell them everything to do every day? Our, uh, our baby turned 17 yesterday. Our others are in their 20s. I'm trying to imagine what it would be like every day saying, wear these clothes, take this class, go to that school, don't forget your umbrella, apply for this job, marry that person, purchase this house. And you always tell them exactly what they're supposed to do as long as they live. Would you want that as parents? No, no is the right answer. No. You wouldn't want that. Why? Because your main goal as parents is not that they grow up to be these little gophers who carry out all of your instructions. Your main goal is that they become people of great character and sound judgment and discernment. And the only way that they can do that is by making decisions, lots and lots of decisions, 70 a day. 25,000 a year, 2 million over the course of a life. And along the way, they're going to make some bad decisions. That's one of the ways that they will learn. Now listen, I mean, if, if God has a specific thing that he needs you to do, I mean, a specific place that he absolutely wants you to live, or a job that he absolutely wants you to take, I'm pretty sure that God can make his will known. You know? And the Bible talks about that. But for the most part, I'm not sure that that's how God interacts with his people. For the most part, I think God comes along as people and says, I want you to grow up, be people of good character and sober judgment. God's will for you might be, I want you to decide. Because decision making is an essential part of forming character. And God is primarily in the character forming business. 
our Heavenly Father wants us to grow up in Christ. He's in the character-forming business, not the circumstance-shaping business. Have you noticed that? That, that God is far less frequent in answering those prayers, say, God, please, please, please change the circumstances, than he is in answering the prayer, God, please, please, please change me so that I can live in these circumstances. He's in the character-forming business, and it's God's primary will. That's why when we face a decision in the book of James, James doesn't say, if any of you face a tough decision and you're feeling anxious about it, ask God to tell you exactly what to do so that you can be relieved of the burden of making a choice. James doesn't say God relieves you of the difficulty of making decisions. What he says is ask God for wisdom. And then you and God can do this together and you can grow up as a person in Christ. So good decisions, they begin with, we're going to call it the Solomon ask. You pray. Not not necessarily for specific instructions, not necessarily the circumstances get all laid out. God is at door number one, door number two, door number three. But God, would you give me wisdom? Give me a discerning heart and an understanding mind. Here's the second thing, secret to making good decisions. These are not secrets, by the way. Uh, If there are secrets, they're out there for the whole world. So this is a public secret. Second thing is also a prayer. But after you've prayed specifically for wisdom, pray for the right frame of mind. Have you noticed this? An anxious mind, an exhausted body, often leads to terrible decision-making. Paul says this, Philippians 4, verse 6. He says this beautifully. The peace of God, which transcends all human understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. But if you're not feeling that, maybe this is not the right time to rush a life-changing decision out the door. If I'm going to make a good decision, I need that settled sense of peace, the encouragement of knowing that I am with God in this. And here's a great example. I think we might have talked about this about a year ago. One of the other uh, really heroic figures in the Old Testament is a man named Elijah. Uh, Elijah, at one point in his life, an amazing, intense spiritual experience, is involved in this highly public sort of battle of the gods, if you would like. The false gods and their Baal prophets and the one true living God. And Elijah is the spokesperson. And he calls down fire from heaven and he outraces a chariot and all of this. Just spiritual, emotional, physical intensity. And at the end of it, God is honored and Elijah is exhausted. I mean, he's just depleted completely. And we we find him leaning back against a broom tree. I don't know what a broom tree is, but I just I kind of love the fact that the Bible describes it. There he is. He's leaning against a broom tree, exhausted. And word reaches him that the queen, Jezebel, is upset with him. And the initial response from this remarkable guy, because he's been through such an exhausting experience, is, I just want to give up and die. I mean, a really interesting moment. And here's the lesson. Here's what comes next. God gives him a giant timeout. He says, Elijah, I think you need to rest. Go to sleep for a while. And so he sleeps underneath the shadow of a broom tree. Then he wakes up and says, Elijah, I think you need to eat something. So he gives him 
a few good meals. And then he says, Elijah, I think you need to rest some more. And for the next 40 days of rest and nourishment and being with God, Elijah is replenished to the place he can make sound decisions about how to respond. Folks, I've seen this, you've seen this, I've done this. We make terrible decisions when we are exhausted and drained and discouraged and frayed. We make decisions we would never make if we were rested and at peace. It's part of why this encouragement to find good rhythms of rest and work is so important to wisdom. Wisdom is not just about information. Now, there's a amount of it that's about gathering good facts, but wisdom is so much more. Wisdom is about emotional self-management, about spiritual and emotional self-awareness. Am I in a good place to make this decision? Again, you know this to be true. Somebody is going through the tragedy, the absolute trauma of losing somebody dear to them in their life. The last thing we would encourage them to do is make a lot of big life-altering decisions while they're going through that season of grief. No, rest and heal. Find peace in your soul. And then out of that place of peace, you can make a decision. So you start with God, just give me wisdom, and then pray, God, get me in the right frame of mind. Let your peace guard my heart and my mind in Christ. Here's a third thing. Consider the long-term consequences. Consider the values that are involved in decision. One of the things that that leads to terrible decision-making is that we are so short-sighted in our time frame. One of the most common themes you find it echoed throughout the book of Proverbs is the danger of rash decision-making. Rushing a decision out the door just to be done with it. Solomon says this, Proverbs 19, verse 2, it's not good to have zeal without knowledge nor to be hasty and to miss the way. I think there's something in our culture that, that reveres the, uh, I don't know, the, uh, the out front, independent, solo, strong-minded leader who just calls a shot, makes a decision, makes a decision, makes a decision, and people follow. Wise people spend time talking to God. Is this a decision that could have real serious implications down the road? God, help me see everything that's at stake here. Not just what feels good in the moment, but what kind of person is this going to make me in the days to come, a month from now, a year from now? Let me give you an example here. We get so short-sighted. A couple, fictitious couple, are married to each other for, I don't know, let's say 28 years, fictitiously. They have different daily rhythms for when they are most awake and energized and at their best and when they are most drowsy and depleted and ready for bed. He is a lark. I mean, he wakes up early in the morning, full throttle, wide awake, super early, can't wait to go. She hates that. Uh, she, She is a night owl. She is most energized at that time of night, and she really wants to be able to talk and bond and connect, and he's in a coma by then. And neither style is right or wrong. Neither one is better or worse. Of course, Jesus was a morning person. (laughs) But he probably loves the night owls too. 
One day he suggests fictitiously, we could sleep in separate bedrooms. That way you wouldn't have to worry about disturbing me when you come to bed and I wouldn't have to worry about disturbing you when I get up in the morning. Sounds like problem solving. It's just good logistics. But again, where there is a lack of wisdom, often there's a lack of awareness to what's going on underneath. And under the surface, maybe she's a little bit unsettled by that idea. Maybe even a little bit irritated by it. Because when he says we could sleep in separate bedrooms, it hurts. By the way, not autobiographical, this part. Just in case you're wondering, it hasn't happened. We're good, aren't we? Are we good? We, we still have one bedroom. but Maybe under the surface, though, she feels a little bit rejected. And maybe he's hardly aware of that. And so they go ahead and, and they get a separate bed and roll it into a separate bedroom. And, and he sleeps well and she sleeps well. But what happens is there are a hundred times, a thousand times, when they don't say, I love you at night or in the morning. When they don't say good night or, or, or what are you up to tomorrow? They don't have all those silly, goofy, private little conversations that happen in that twilight of consciousness. You know the ones. Right? That one decision to set aside the moments when you are most unguarded with another person. It has disproportionate impact. Decisions are that way. One leads to another and they compound each other and they can elevate us or they can spiral us downward and, and eventually the feeling of love is gone and their hearts grow cold and then one day they make the big decision to end the marriage. But before the big exit, there were a hundred little exits or more. Little decisions that we make knowingly and unknowingly. And they're not often about IQ. Uh, and they're, they're not always about getting all the facts. They're about wisdom at a deeper level. Wise people, they pause when those decisions come. And they say, God, would you show me not just this moment, not just what would feel good now, but what the impact could be tomorrow or next month or 10 years from now? What could be the long-range consequences? God, help me to remember when I'm making this decision, the things that I value the most and the things you value most in me. Help me when I make this decision to understand what kind of man it will turn me to be. What kind of dad and husband and follower of Jesus? What kind of worker and supporter and servant I want to be? Because there is a world of difference between making a decision based on what would feel good right now and making a decision based on what kind of person do I want to be? What kind of person is God calling me to be? What kind of life is he creating in me? Here's a fourth. By the way, there are 17. No. Get wise counsel. If you want wisdom, don't do it all by yourself. Get people around you of good character who you trust, who have good judgment, and you know they love you, they care about you, and you care about them, and tell them, I've got this decision to make. Can we talk about it together? 
Can I use you as a sounding board for these things? Very often, God will speak wisdom into our lives through the human lips of another person. Have you had that experience? I'm so glad I talked to them. Oh, my goodness. I was about to go down the wrong road, and they straightened me out. Again, Solomon in the book of Proverbs in 12, verse 15. The way of fools seems right to them. I like that phrase, the way of fools. Why? Because, well, they're fools. And there's a little bit of, in fact, let's do this. Because there's a little bit of it in all of us, the way of fools. Uh, Turn to somebody around you and just uh, let them know there's a fool in you. You're taking great delight in doing this, aren't you? Yeah. That's just the way it is. There, There is a little bit of that in all of us, the way of fools. The way of fools seems right to them, but the wise... They listen to advice. A teachable spirit, a coachable spirit is so key to wisdom, and we need this. And ironically, one of the greatest violators of this principle, years later, turned out to be Solomon himself. Solomon, who one day asked God for wisdom, later on we find in the same book, 1 Kings, around chapter 11, says this, he, Solomon, had 700 wives of royal birth, 300 more concubines, and they all led him astray. I don't doubt it. Here's a little bit of wisdom. Don't marry a thousand people. But, you know, part of what Solomon's story tells us is that the battle for wisdom is never over. You can have wisdom, you can make lots of good decisions, but we also have weaknesses, we have blind spots, things that we don't see. Nobody's perfect. We say that, it was on the sign as he drove in. Nobody's perfect, everyone's welcome, anything's possible. Let's let's stay with that first thought. Nobody's perfect. We need people to step into the blind spots with us. And hey, you can start applying this principle This week, if you have a decision, an important decision looming in your life right now, just think of one person or two people that you could get in touch with. And here's what you're going to ask them. Say, hey, could I could I use you as a sounding board? I have to make this decision. Could I use you as a sounding board? Here's what I'm thinking. How does that sound to you? Somebody who knows you and loves you. And you look up to them for their character and their judgment. Get wise counsel and be prepared to listen. Here's the last thing. See, it wasn't 17. Put your decision into action and do it with gusto and to trust God when you do it. This is really critical about decision making. Actually, make the decision. When you've prayed about it, when you've come into a a, a proper posture, a restful spirit, a sense of peace, a guarded heart, when you've sought out wise counsel, make the decision and embrace it. Nobody's infallible. You won't be perfect all the time, but don't allow the fear of making the wrong decision to stop you from making any decision. Because we get paralyzed by decisions, do we not? I'm not making this up. There was a philosopher years ago, 20th century, named Walter Kaufman. I think he was a Princeton philosopher. He's the one who coined the term decidophobia. Because he'd noticed that among human beings, 
there is this tendency to avoid decision-making at all because of all of the anxiety about the possibility of being wrong. Decisions wear us out. Let me give you an example. <laughs> have, you, have you ever eaten at the Cheesecake Factory? They have one up uh, now at Yorkdale Mall. And I, I, was up, I met Denise Gallard there, who, by the way, is going to come soon and speak. Uh, I'm so excited. But Cheesecake Factory, that menu, that menu looks like the operating system for NASA. I mean, there are so many choices. And it's just paralyzing, right? I've never been to the Cheesecake Factory before. I probably will never go again. What if I make the wrong choice? And so many things. Decidophobia. And again, I think one of the ways that God leads us through life is not by saying mysteriously, you should get the teriyaki chicken, but by confronting us with lots of choices, placing people with us along the way, inviting us to pray and walk with them, and then giving us the adventure of making decisions through our life. Uh, Kaufman had one other interesting observation about decidophobia. He said that generally in decision-making, there are two different clusters or kinds or or groups of people. Uh, There's a whole area of research into decision-making. There are areas of research into everything. But in this area of research, they talk about these two categories. One are, they call them the maximizers. Maximizers are those who feel the need to make the very best decision all the time. Not just a good decision, but the best decision. That means that they will exhaustively search through every single option to make sure that the decision is not just sufficient, but it's best. They are the maximizers. That's some of you. You are the ones who, when you search for a product on Amazon, don't just pick the one that pops up as Amazon's choice. You spend the next two hours searching through all 160 pages and reading all the reviews on every product. You are the maximizers. Then there are the satisfiers. Satisfiers who are looking, are those who are just looking for a decision that's good enough. It's good enough. If you're a satisfier, you look through the options until you find one that just checks the right boxes, you pick it, and you move on. <laughs> if you're not sure which one you are, imagine the last time that you were in a hotel room or, or maybe just in front of a TV set, one of those ones that's hooked up to every cable option, you know, 400 channels. If you are a maximizer, what are you going to do? you will look through every one of those 400 channels before you pick what you're going to watch because you are paralyzed by the idea that you might miss something better. If you are a satisfier, you just flip through until you find something interesting and you'll watch that. Actually, I think there's another group. There's, they're the nurturers. They just they love all kinds of things, and so they want to watch that and nurture it a little bit, and they'll watch that. But anyway, maximizers and satisfiers. Interestingly, you know, and this is for young people here, when it comes to job searches, maximizers, as you might expect, do intense searches. They end up, as a result of their searches, on average, making a starting salary about 20% higher than others. But, and this is what's fascinating, they're often less satisfied with their decisions. 
They're more anxious. They do better, but they feel worse. So I don't want you to feel like if your personality is one or the other, that one is better than the other. But be aware of what's happening here. But for all of us, I want to give you a great verse for this week, and then we'll move towards wrapping it up. This is Paul writing to a young job seeker named Timothy. Timothy was actually for applying for the job of apprentice to Paul. But 2 Timothy 2 or 2 Timothy 1, verse 7. For God did not give us a spirit of timidity, but a spirit of power and love and self-discipline. God wants you to grow up in wisdom. That means this week there's all kinds of decisions for you to make. Let's make this week an adventure in making good, God-honoring, with God decisions. And you can start out tomorrow morning. Start out tomorrow morning and you decide how you are going to start the morning. The language around this is really fascinating. Anybody ever get up on the wrong side of the bed? You get up and, and you're already depressed and defeated and you've just opened your eyes. You don't have to start your day that way. You can decide. Here's some wise advice that, that I was given a long time ago. Before you get up, before your feet hit the floor, in your mind, you could recite, for example... Part of Psalm 23, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. God, today, would you shepherd me through everything that happens? Would you fulfill the appetites of my soul? Or the Lord's Prayer, our Father who's in heaven, your name is holy. Give me today the needs of the day, daily bread. Let your kingdom come here on earth in me, in my life. But the point is, before your feet hit the floor, before your thumb goes for your cell phone to see all the email you missed overnight or what happened on Facebook, you commit to doing the day with God. Your first decision before the other 70 are to invite God into your day. And then maybe your last decision at the end of the day is to look back and, and learn from what happened and say, God, thanks for being with me. Let's do it again tomorrow. So that's it, the adventure of the week, the adventure of decision-making. I think this is going to be a good series. I'm excited about it. Um, Next week, we're going to take a break, though, having just started, uh, because we're going to celebrate Mother's Day. I thought that would be a wise decision to celebrate Mother's Day, not to skip it in the name of a series. But uh, I want to close just on one other really important thought, because maybe some of you are thinking, uh, it sounds great. But it's too late for me. I've already made a set of decisions in my life from which there's no coming back. Uh, I blew up my marriage and now it's over. I've alienated my kids and they won't talk to me. I've violated my integrity in a really public way. I've betrayed my values. I've sinned, whatever it is. I want to say this to you, to all of us. We are not saved by the quality of our decisions. We are saved by the grace of God. The first service had a louder amen, didn't they, Rochelle? Let me say that again. We are not saved by the quality of our decisions. We are saved by the grace of God. Amen. Amen. Hey, they're not Pentecostal, but they're doing all right. Sheldon, there they are. 
You have never made a decision so bad that God cannot forgive it. And I love this. At the very end of the Gospels, at the, at the pinnacle moment, at God's mighty redemptive act, there is Jesus in sacrificial love hanging on the cross. And who's there beside him? Seventy times a day, 25,000 times a year, year after year, a life committed to thievery, corruption, and deceit. There is a thief hanging on the cross. But the last decision that he makes is to cast his life into Jesus' hands. Lord, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus says, you got it. Today you will be with me in paradise. We are not saved by our decisions. We are saved by grace. So we're going to pray now as we prepare to celebrate communion. But here's what I'd like to do as we get ready to pray. Uh, If any of you have a need, a particular need for wisdom, you're facing a decision, a, a defining moment in your life, or you're looking back over the choices you've made in the recent past, I want to pray specifically for you, and I'm going to invite you to stand. Sometimes it's good to worship with our bodies. So if you're facing a decision in some significant area, maybe you're a parent and you're having difficulty, there's some challenge there, I'm going to invite you to stand. And maybe if you're at a place in your work life where you're, you're stuck or you're having a problem and you don't know what to do, I'm going to invite you to stand. Maybe it's in your marriage. And it's a time of transition or it's a season that's just really hard. You're finding it difficult. Maybe it's your financial life and you're facing all kinds of pressures. Many of us are. You don't know what to do. You you haven't been receiving the income or you haven't been, been able to give as generously as you would like to give. But maybe you need to stand and ask for wisdom there. Maybe there's a relationship that's troubling or there's a difficult person in your life and And you feel stuck. Or you need wisdom around how you spend your time because you're feeling stagnant. Or your spiritual life, you've just hit a plateau and you you just don't feel the way that you used to feel with God. Or you're feeling guilt around something. Whatever it is, if in any area of your life you're facing a significant area of decision and you're seeking wisdom from God, I'm going to invite you to stand with me right now. And we'd like to pray together. If that's you. Will you stand? So together, let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for all of the ways that you care for us. And we pray now that you would be with us in the valley of decision. For some of us standing, it's a deep valley. I pray now especially, I pray for everyone in this room who are joining us online, who are standing up before you, God, who are courageously saying, as Solomon did long ago, God, give me an understanding mind and a discerning heart. So, Lord, I pray along with everyone who is standing before you. We're just doing as you've invited us to do. We're asking you for wisdom, Lord. We're recognizing that we have the capacity to achieve great things in our lives when you are with us. And we can make a mess of it when we're doing it alone. And we never want that.
Father, would you give us insight and discernment? Would you give us clarity and knowledge and understanding beyond human ability? Help us to make great decisions. May the peace of God guard our hearts and our minds. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.